The nominees for Best Motion Picture are The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Kathleen Kennedy, Frank Marshall, and Sion Chafin Producers. Frost Nixon, Brian Grazier, Ron Howard, and Eric Fellner, producers. Milk, Dan Jinks, and Bruce Cohen, producers. The Reader, Anthony Minghella, Sidney Pollock, Donna Gilati, and Redmond Morris, producers. Slumdog Millionaire, Christian Colson, producer. And the Oscar goes to Hello there, all you millionaires and slum dogs, and welcome to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, still the only podcast that rights the wrongs, celebrates the slighted, and rips Oscars from undeserving hands. Here we are, episode 203. I am Lee Charles, and who might you be? <laughs> Spro the slum dog, I feel, because I ain't no millionaire. And here's an episode that I cocked my eyebrow up at first. You mentioned it. And because for the mere thought that I know some casual theater goers who like the pick for best picture this year. I used to I used to have this opinion that this year was not a good year for movies, 2008. But after I got into it and reviewed some of the releases, I think it might have been the Academy's nominations that influenced that opinion. Um, some of the top award category nominations, uh, I remember 12 years ago watching the show live and just being disappointed by who was nominated and who was won. And I think if we felt like making a three-parter out of this episode, we could do three parts about 2008 Oscars and uh, could probably present pretty good arguments for de-Oscaring more than just Best Picture. But anywho, all of that makes Roger Ebert's claim that it was the best Oscar show he'd ever seen even more head-scratchingly odd. Well, I mean, we could do a three-parter just over three different seasons of this year, depending on how many ideas we come up with for our multi-season run. But uh, yeah, he did, Roger Ebert did talk glowingly, as did a variety of critic outlets about the host of this year, which was Hugh Jackman. It had been five years since Billy Crystal last did the gig, and since, they just had like a lot of spot-staining comedians, and funny jokes are good and all, but an entertainer like Jackman, like Billy Crystal, somebody that's going to... croon from the stage, you know, is going to stand out. I do remember that. I do remember lots of singing and dancing. Uh, I I guess I just prefer a joke, man, like um, Crystal, if you're going to go classic. I thought Alec Baldwin and um, Steve Martin did a good job. I thought Jimmy Kimmel was good. I even thought Ellen DeGeneres was good. Apparently, though, she's now persona non grata. I thought Jon Stewart was fabulous as well. I think we should just rotate the four of them and uh, throw Tina Fey and Amy Poehler combo in there too. And I think uh, Martin Short as Jiminy Glick should at least be popping up every year at the Oscars to <laughs> <laughs> give shit to everybody. So before we started this show, we have some fun things to talk about first. And when I say fun, I of course mean Oscar fun facts from our resident film historian or Wikipedia expert, Spro. Spro? <laughs> Before we get into the fun facts, I do, it might be a good exercise a couple seasons in the future. We should try and figure out what is the worst year in movies. Hmm. Because we started this season talking about the best years for movies. I wonder what you could really, because looking at it, hundreds and hundreds of films come out every year. It would be hard not to find at least five great ones, you would think, right? Mm -hmm, mm For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick-me-up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor of 1993. We here at Spro and Lee Take on the Academy take our coffee seriously. We are passionate, eccentric, 
and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog. Odd Dog Coffee is a specialty roaster based out of Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise a high-quality roast profile to create a solid bean, and when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, 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 no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon stick. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day. Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from four original roasts, cardamom and clove, just the beans, cinnamon and cayenne cacao, or my personal favorite, reishi shroom and L-theanine. Place your order now and get free shipping on orders over $40. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies you watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but odd dog. This isn't going to be a fun fact as much as a raving rant. It was while researching this episode that I stumbled across a phrase I see repeatedly while looking into the Academy Awards, and it's usually phrased like, uh, quote, due to a decline in viewership, the Academy has changed this about themselves, which always made it seem like the teenage girl who stopped wearing boy clothes because she wanted the popular girls to quit picking on her in high school. Or at least to me, anyway, it was the Academy Awards was trying to be popular. But you're one of the greatest award shows out there, especially when it like, as far as like Hollywood is concerned, the Oscars are the upper echelon of award shows. There once was a day that the Academy Awards didn't care about viewership, about being popular, because popularity came with the prestige. The Academy Awards were first handed out in 1929. We are eight years away from this award show being a hundred years old. And at that time, yeah, isn't it? And at that time, the audience was comprised of 270 individuals paying $5 a ticket. For 24 years, nobody gave a shit about viewership because it wasn't until 1953 that they're even televised with good old Bob Hope hosting that gig. Perhaps we only focus on greatness when greatness is in our past. According to Nielsen ratings, the most watched Academy Awards show was in 1970 when Midnight Cowboy won. That drew a 43.4% rating. But you can't judge a show's success rate when it was one of only three programs on that night. So... What accounts for the decline in viewership? Plenty of opinions. Lee has some. He has expressed his opinion about two things. One, not agreeing with the nominations or awards given, and the need for Hollywood to soapbox their politics from what was their biggest stage. The Academy Awards says ceremonies honoring films that have not performed well at the box office tend to show weaker ratings, despite how much critically acclaimed those films have been. But the 92nd Academy Awards drew an average of 24 million viewers, and the 93rd Academy Awards drew an even lower viewership of 10.4 million. That is the lowest viewership on record by Nielsen since it started recording audience totals in 1974. So despite the awards every year doing whatever they can from introducing and taking away the most popular film category, injecting new blood into its voting pool, getting popular hosts to no hosts, expanding the best picture category to 10, all this to appease an audience that is increasingly turning its back. So what's the deal? One, let's look at the very real explanation that nobody is watching TV like they used to. The Oscars are a long show and one that, while live, isn't accustomed to anything being out of line or something you cannot watch the highlights of 
on YouTube the next day. And two, more importantly, the Oscars brand is watered down. In order to appease everyone's tastes, they made the award show as bland as a schoolroom lunch. I've had some good lunches in schoolrooms, so that's reductive. No, you <laughs> reductive and unfair to lunch ladies and I will not stand for it. And it's also probably kind of safe to say, I I didn't do my research on this, but I just wanted to pop in and say, as they are losing tons of old viewers, they're not adding even a few new ones. I bet if we looked up demographics of those Nielsen ratings, I bet their shittiest demographic is Gen Z. No doubt. When I was running a theater company in Cleveland, Ohio, one of my favorite pieces of advice was, if you want a sold out show, provide less seats. If the Oscars wants to increase their viewership, what I believe that they need to do is they need to start acting like the biggest, they need to start acting like what they are. They are the biggest awards show in town and not like a Tim Allen sitcom sweating over being canceled. The Oscars should have done all of their changes, right? They should have. All the diversity changes I'm totally on board with, but should have done them privately, publicly wearing the face of what Ray Liotta eloquently states in Goodfellas. Fuck you, pay me. Publicly changing felt like pandering and pandering doesn't please anybody. The hashtag Oscars so white people are still not changing the awards. And now the hashtag don't change a thing people are leaving because the Oscars publicly appeased and keep publicly appeasing. They are losing credibility, whereas now every nomination and award isn't being scrutinized as appeasing somebody. While I started this rant saying perhaps the pontificating of politics is a reason for the decline, I do believe the Academy can take a couple notes from American politics. American politicians don't have power because they do the most for the people. They have power because they say, I'm the best, deal with it. The next time somebody says viewership is down, the Academy needs to sack up and say, we average 10 more million viewers than the Golden Globes who are double the Emmys. We are still regarded as the most prestigious award show. Fuck you, pay me. That. Celebrate the films nominated. Have an MC that keeps the show moving. Remind celebrities politics are personal, that it's not very hard to prove hypocrisy, and put the respectability back in the awards like they commanded before it was televised and before they cared what anybody else thought about the Academy. That was really good, man. That was like uh, very, you always, bravo. Anyway, um, (laughs) I did want to point out one non-cinema related historical fact, which we didn't necessarily dive into when we talked about 2007. This was the second year of what has come to be known as the Great Recession, the subprime mortgage crisis, etc., etc. So in an effort to spare listeners the boring and clunky description of what a subprime, I don't know what the fuck it is anyway. So um, I would recommend watching The Big Short if you're like, what was the Great Recession and why did it happen? Big Short does a pretty good job of explaining it for dummies like me. But I will say that in 2008, people weren't interested in going to the movies. And if they were, they were probably going and seeing movies like Pirates and Iron Man to escape. All right. So getting into the award shows, we can pretty much throw out the MTV Movie Awards because they (laughs) nominated Twilight or they gave Twilight the Best Picture of the Year award, which, okay. But they also nominated Iron Man, The Dark Knight, High School Musical 3, Senior Year, and Slumdog Millionaire. So, eh, okay. The Saturn Awards usually... 
we could like pick like one, I guess, category. But this year they had four categories of best films in different genres. So I'm just going to read them super quick. And if there's anything that stands out that you want to talk about, let's do it. All right. So science fiction for best science fiction film of the year, Iron Man, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Eagle Eye, The Incredible Hawk, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and Jumper. For Best Fantasy Film, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, Hancock, The Spiderwick Chronicles, Twilight, and Wanted. Best Horror Film, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, The Happening, <laughs> The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, Quarantine, Splinter, The Strangers. And then Best Action or Adventure Film, The Dark Knight, Changeling, Gran Torino, Quantum of Solace, Traitor, and Valkyrie. I've still not seen the second Hellboy to this day. That's Um, a watch. That's a watch for you. Yeah. All right, moving on. Critics' Choice Awards. Three films that stand out for this is Changeling with Angelina Jolie, The Dark Knight, which we all know, and WALL-E. What I would say maybe one of, if not the best Pixar film. It's a bold claim. It is a bold claim, but it's one that like I can constantly revisit and the one that I constantly think about when it comes to like, I don't know, just how trash the planet is getting with also how how dependent we are on machines and how worse it might get. Like I think Wally is a very insightful, one of the most insightful Pixar films. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I think when we when we did our animated episode last year, though, you did not put Wally. So you've revised your list. You did not put Wally at the top. Yeah. Well, I just watched it again with my students, and I'm like, how much they do with how little words? I don't know. It just yeah. that film is. I would say it's one of Pixar's masterpieces. Yeah, I got to go finding Nemo, but that's me. That's fine. That's what we studied here for UCLA. The Dark Knight as I've just been reading all Nolan's scripts, I would say is a great Heath Ledger performance. I do not like the beat that it takes when Harvey Dent turns into Two-Face. Like it's such a quick beat from him. I don't know, being pissed off that Rachel dies to him gonna slaughter Commissioner Gordon's family. Like it just doesn't make sense to me. Agreed. But Changeling, Changeling, I just watched for this episode. One, I think it's a horrible title. Two, it doesn't, it's not necessarily about the police pushing off this boy on the grieving mother. It's more so about this murderer keeping little boys cooped up in a chicken coop and the capturing of him. So what would you call it? It used to have a title. Hold on, let me find it. The original title was The Strange Case of Christine Collins. I like that. Yeah, but then it would have been two cases, one strange and one curious in the same year. That's not... (laughs) That's not how you title movies, though. You t- I think uh, I, I think that's probably why they changed it. But title aside, what'd you think? Because this was one I suggested to you. I liked it. I It took me a little bit to get into it. I would say it's kind of a slow first 20 minutes. But then mm-hmm. after that, I was, I was on board. I always, if I don't love it, I typically always like a Clint Eastwood work. An Oscar winner? No. No. But definitely something that brings you very well into the time period that they're talking about. It got me researching the case that it was all based on. Like, I never even heard of it before. And the fact that, I don't know, like everything about it was just kind of interesting up until the very end when they talk about the town not wanting to be connected to the case anymore, changing its entire name. I'm like, damn, like just interesting stuff. Didn't it happen in Saskatchewan? Yes. 
So the same place that they just found like hundreds of children's bodies at that school. Not the exact same town, but the same Canadian province. In 1926, um, the boy, Sanford Clark, was taken from his home in Saskatchewan, but they were taken to Wineville, California. A little dark. Yeah. How about them Golden Globes, son? Nothing we won't talk about later for drama. Golden Globes comedy. We have Mamma Mia, In Bruges, Happy Go Lucky, Burn After Reading, and Vicky Cristina Barcelona. And it went to Vicky Cristina. Yeah. Woody Allen. So, In Bruges, directed by Martin McDonough. What's fucking unbelievable? Are you talking to me? He pauses even though he should just hit the cunt. And he repeats, yes, I am talking to you. What's fucking unbelievable? Well, I'll tell you what's fucking unbelievable, shall I? Blowing cigarette smoke straight into myself and my girlfriend's face. That's fucking unbelievable. This is the smoking section. I don't care if it's the smoking section. Right? She, she directed it right in my face, man. I don't want to die just because you're fucking arrogance. Uh-huh. Isn't that what the Vietnamese used to say? Vietnamese? What are you talking about the Vietnamese? That statement makes no fucking sense at all. Yes, it does. The Vietnamese. We're saying it over and over ain't gonna make any more sense out of it. How, how, how does the Vietnamese have any relevance whatsoever to myself and my girlfriend ha- having to breathe your friend's cigarette smoke? Tell me, how's saying? That's for John Lennon, you Yankee fucking cunt. A bottle. Now don't bother. This movie and Mamma Mia and in some ways Burn After Reading have all continued to be talked about. Kids still listen to the Mamma Mia soundtrack. Adults still listen to the Mamma Mia soundtrack. Burn After Reading is just a wealth of gifs and memes. Um, but In Bruges is, is one that I, I'm always surprised if somebody brings that movie up. It uh, seems to remain an audience favorite. I see it suggested all the time on Reddit and uh, referred to as <laughs> Redditors will do, uh, referred to as the proverbial underrated gem. God, I hate that phrase. But it doesn't change the fact that it's it's good and everybody in it is good. McDonough, who um, obviously is a playwright, this was his first screenplay and film to be produced. But... Uh, it's beautiful, really well filmed for a first time director, and uh, and it's it's funny and really upsetting, and that those emotions get mixed in with each other quite a bit. So that and the subject matter makes it all a little bit hard to connect with at times. But a very good watch if you've never seen it. It's funny because you could pretty much take what you just said about In Bruges and put it with three billboards of Ebbing, Missouri. Right? The script is very good. Everybody in it is very good. Subject matter makes it hard to to stomach, but it's funny and it's dark, right? Like, I think if you liked Three Billboards of Ebbing, Missouri, you will definitely like In Bruges because that's just McDonald's. That's his style. Vicky Cristina Barcelona is a romantic comedy, drama. It's a Woody Allen plot, which I want to have a Woody Allen episode. I don't know how you feel about a man who marries his daughter. I saw he uh, he's pictured with Jeffrey Epstein, too, which is uh, sort of the end of my Woody Allen watching career, unfortunately. Producers Guild, Directors Guild, Screen Actors Guild, BAFTAs is nothing that we're not about to talk about when it comes to the end of the show. But right before we enter into Oscar territory, let's talk about the films of the year that you discovered when trying to decide whether it was a horrible year for movies or not. So what Um, didn't get enough love this year? Some that I discovered, but some that I just revisited. Did a lot of film watching for this episode. Did you check out Speed Racer, directed by the Wachowskis? 
I put it on when it first came out, never connected with it, but like, so it went into the background. So how I view movies is pretty much this. I will put it on. I'll give it 30 minutes of a chance. And then after that, I'll let it play, but I'll start working on other things. And so Speed Racer was one of those where I let it play for 30 minutes. I couldn't necessarily connect to the story. I'm not a huge anime fan to begin with. So it wasn't like the product of Speed Racer was the reason I was seeing the movie. I was probably more so seeing it because of the Wachowski sisters. It was more so going to see what they were going to do with Speed Racer after what they did with Matrix. But yeah, no, it didn't connect. I mean, visually, same thing with Tron. I did not connect with, but I kept it on. And like the visuals of those these two movies is pretty amazing. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair cop. This movie was a severe bomb and uh, just got... I mean, it didn't ruin the Wachowskis' career. They, they're still making movies, although they are returning to the well with uh, Matrix 4. But this was one that you started to see kind of getting reappraised pretty quickly. The visuals in this are stunning, and I immediately regretted not seeing it in the theater because even here on my 42-inch flat screen, I was just dazzled. It doesn't warrant its two-hour and 15-minute runtime, and the script is all over the place. And I think, yeah, I didn't connect with it either, but they're such good filmmakers that... It's so impressive, so stylized. Watching it here at home was cool because I was like rewinding and rewatching every time I was like, holy shit out loud. They hit you in the opening scene and sequence with just a ridiculous race. And it's like, how are they going to top that? But they do. And you can see a parallel between what the Wachowskis were trying to do and what Edgar was trying to, Edgar Wright was trying to do with Scott Pilgrim or even what Luc Besson was trying to do with the prologue to um, Valerian. And they were trying to actively push the medium forward using CGI less as like a tool to put a dinosaur in with real people and more to just create an entire world. And Tron Legacy, that's a good pickup on your part. I, I would throw that in there as well. It was worth bringing this movie up. And I swear to God, if you have if you have a good sound system or even if you don't, if you got a got a couple of kids i recommend checking this one out get it from your local library for free not obviously best picture but uh definitely worth a look the next film on the list can you pronounce it synecdoche (laughs) synecdoche new york so kaufman is another screenwriter that i wanted to read all of his works this is a tough one for me. What did you think? I, th- this is one movie that like, I was super excited to watch. And I think I jumped on my laptop like you. I think I gave it a chance and I tried and I was like, this, I don't, I don't get it. It's stupid. It's, I didn't like it. And it's, uh, there are some people that just champion this as a masterpiece and I must be dumb or they must be overly praising it because it's not a masterpiece. <laughs> no. When he directs himself, I don't think he has enough editing, self-editing to make it make sense to a wider range of audiences or the audience that he's looking for are these people who want more abstract, which I am not. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I couldn't even bring myself to revisit it for this episode. So can I talk about Hancock? Yeah. So I hadn't seen this one and it was one of the top grossing films of the year, narrowly missing third place, which was Kung Fu Panda. Came out two years after Singer's Superman Returns and Ratner's X-Men The Last Stand, one year after Raimi's Spider-Man 3 and the same year as Nolan's The Dark Knight and Favreau's Iron Man. The former be, or the the latter 
being the one which obviously set into motion the phases one through three of the MCU and dominated worldwide box office for the next 11 years. So as unconventional superhero stories go, Hancock was a little before its time. It's rather predictable, a little francophobic, and kind of struggles to land that third act. But first hour or so is not bad up until the big reveal and maybe a touch afterwards. Um, I was mostly impressed with Smith because he plays the titular hero with a muted sadness and like a earnest grumpiness that, I, you know, two emotions you don't see from him. In that sense, it was interesting. Yeah, I liked I mean, I own it. And I will agree with everything you said. I really like how Jason Bateman is the I like the, the whole story behind a drunk superhero who needs a publicity department head who plays by Jason Bateman to help him fix his how the public views him. But yeah, no, this movie kind of crashes and burns. A movie that I pitched to you <laughs> was <laughs> Teeth. Uh-huh. <laughs> and really, I thought about Teeth with Last Year and Promising Young Woman because I think they're kind of along the same vein of men are assholes and women empowerment. And I enjoy Teeth more than I enjoy Promising Young Because I think like Promising Young Woman, one of the critics said that every time it was about to touch a hot topic, it recoiled its hand really quick. And it never really got into the nitty gritty of what it was really trying to say. Teeth, on the other hand, I think probably goes and leaves its hand on the hot topic until the flesh is searing and everybody in the house smells a human flesh. flesh. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm glad that we're talking about teeth because nobody really knows this movie it kind of because it's about vagina dentata but it don't just say vagina dentata and <laughs> and expect it's about to a, know what you're talking about it's about a girl that has teeth in her vagina it's about <laughs> a biting vagina vagina and it um <laughs> but the, i think there's more audience out there for it's not for everybody for sure but i think there's more of an audience out there that should go see it and right now you can stream it for free on redbox.com <laughs> what did you think I was speaking with my sainted or saintly mother about, you know, she was just asking me, she's like, so are you ready? Have you watched all that you're going to watch? She watched a lot of these with me. She was visiting me, her and my dad. I was like, ah, I got one more that I probably won't watch while you guys are here. And uh, she's like, oh yeah, why is that? <laughs> so I told her, she's like, that sounds lovely. Um, <laughs> what did I think? I thought it kept me guessing. I do this with horror movies where I look down on the script. I'm like, ah. Okay, so obviously, uh, you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, I think yeah. I'm, I think I'm better than it, and it's actually not a terrible script. It's actually quite funny. It just gets better and better. I don't want to spoil stuff. It is what it is. Before we move on to your in memoriam, that's pretty much who was not really looked at with the award season. There were some movies. Angelina Jolie's Wanted. Iron Man, Frozen River, The Duchess, Revolutionary Road, I think are about all that were milling about that year that we have not discussed yet and we won't discuss when we get into the Oscars. You weren't able to see Revolutionary Road. Have you ever seen it in the past? Yeah, I did. And it made no impact whatsoever. All I remember is there's an abortion, Michael Shannon, pretty much that's it. So Revolutionary Road is the pairing of Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet after Titanic, right? So like, 
how many teenage young adult girls went to go see this film thinking they were going to see the second coming of Jack and Rose and got this <laughs> movie about two people hating each other in the marriage and fighting over whether or not they should abort their child. <laughs> like the amount of jaw dropping that must have happened with Revolutionary Road, I don't know, tickled me the entire time that I was watching the film of just thinking about like these teenage girls who expected probably something completely different going into the movie. I think they should um, work together again though. Oh yeah, definitely. Like there's so many memes out there that just shows like the progression of their friendship. Kate Winslet is always fantastic, but, and this was actually her year, right? This was her, how we were talking about Amy Adams in one of the previous episodes of season one with nocturnal animals and arrival this year, Kate Winslet was being recognized for revolutionary road in a film we'll talk about coming up with the reader. Leo DiCaprio in this film is him as a DiCaprio performance, but Michael Shannon, I would agree, is probably the the thing that you will walk away with the most. Him and Kathy Bates. The Duchess was Kira Knightley in a period piece. I would say the best thing about it was the production design. Everything out Frozen River, Iron Man, Wanted. I don't think we have to talk about. Yeah, I, I mean, Iron Man's fantastic. That's your favorite uh, Marvel movie. Yeah, it is. But I'm also with the Martin Scorsese belief system that the Marvel movies are fantastic. I love to buy popcorn and watch them. But in the annals of cinema history, where are they really going to rank? Other than like only time, only time will tell. Yeah. Only in like the box office records. So with those down, we will get into the Oscars. But before that, this was a big year for you and not for all happy reasons. (laughs) I don't know. This might just absolutely stop this episode dead. But uh, I wrote an in in memoriam for uh, Paul Newman because this was the year that he passed away. When I was super young, Harrison Ford was my dude. Indiana Jones was who I wanted to be. And Han Solo was the best part of the Star Wars original trilogy. Um, Around 95, 96, I I started a independent study of cinema thanks to the free selection of movies on VHS from my local library in our hometown. And then the world of cinema got a lot bigger for me, uh, bigger than George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. But I spent a lot of summer days and winter weekends alone in my parents' basement watching, you know, VHSs that I had rented. Um, And I was a casual selection of Stuart Rosenberg's 1967 classic Cool Hand Luke that made Newman my new guy. And I, I rapidly redirected the course of my VHS research to include HUD, The Hustler, Harper, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, The Sting, Nobody's Fool, Slapshot, and a lot more. I've still never even seen all of his movies, but filmography aside though, Newman um, was a lot more than just an actor or even a race car driver, which he totally was. He was a chef and his talents in the kitchen led to the founding of Newman's own line of products. You've probably had at least one of his pasta sauces or salad dressings, even if you didn't know you did. And here's something else you may not know, that every penny of profits from Newman's own has gone to various international charities, many of which directly benefit kids. Um, So since 1982, the company has contributed over $550 million to those in need. With some of those profits, Newman founded what 
were formerly called the Hole in the Wall Gang Camps. Um, now they're known as Serious Fun Children's Network. But these are summer camps located on three different continents and dedicated to providing expense-free fun times to kids with uh, serious or terminal illnesses. I actually, when I was 18, I applied to be a counselor at the camp in Connecticut, but I didn't hear back. <laughs> Mr. Newman also co-founded, which I didn't know until researching to write this, the Safe Water Network, which is another nonprofit organization. It works with the private and public sectors to overcome the obstacles to local sustainability and scale and bring clean drinking water to the approximately 800 million in need worldwide. To date, Safe Water Network has been able to get access to clean drinking water to nearly 425,000 people in Ghana and over 1.2 million people in India. And there's, there's actually more, but I don't want to keep going on and on about the guy. Suffice to say, he passed away in late September 2008, and posthumously, one Italian newspaper was quoted as saying that he was a generous heart, an actor of dignity and style, rare in Hollywood quarters. And it's an interesting distinction to make. Newman was a better kind of human being than you normally see coming out of Hollywood. But even more poignant than that were the words of his longtime friend and two-time collaborator, Rob Redford. After Newman's passing, Redford said the following, There is a point where feelings go beyond words. I have lost a real friend. My life in this country is better for his being in it. And I certainly can't imagine a better tribute than that. So here's to Gus, a nickname of the nickname, because it was originally asparagus due to his skinny frame. Cleveland boy, a name on Richard Nixon's enemies list. Philanthropist, and the guy that taught us that sometimes nothing can be a real cool hand. And I still miss him. And if I had a beer, I would cheers, but I don't, so I will raise my coffee. <laughs> Good tribute. Great tribute. All right. So we are now into our award winning films. So this year, the four nominees were The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Frost Nixon, Milk, and The Reader. And then Slumdog Millionaire, Christian Colson Producer. So you're talking about slum, slummy dog millionaire? Yes, exactly. Okay. How I would say it too. <laughs> Directed by the once great Danny Boyle. What would you say was his last good movie? The last film I enjoyed, I wouldn't say it's a great film, but was yesterday in 2019. And that was probably the last film I enjoyed of his. Yeah, I, ha I haven't seen that one. Would I call him great? Well, you think The Beach is pretty great. And that was him. I think... I liked The Beach. I think it's it's an underrated gem. Fair enough. I think Shallow Grave, Shallow Grave Train Spotting, 28 Days Later, Sunshine were terrific. Not so much The Beach, but well, we did give him best, uh, was it best? Yeah, we gave him best director yeah. last season for uh, 28 Days Later, so. <laughs> oh, um, thank you so much to the Academy. As, as you can see, our film was um, a collaboration between uh, hundreds of people, and I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that so many of them uh, could be with us here tonight to share this moment. Um, together, we've been on uh, an extraordinary, an extraordinary journey. Uh, when we started out, uh, we had no stars, we had no power or muscle, we didn't have enough money, really, to do what we wanted to do. Uh, but what we had was a script that inspired mad love uh, in everyone who read it. We had a genius for a director. We had a cast and a crew who were unwavering in their commitment and whose talents uh, are up on the screen for all of you to see. We had uh, partners in uh, Film 4, in Celador, uh, in Pathé and Fox Searchlight who had the courage to support us. And we had a shared love for the extraordinary city 
of Mumbai where we made the movie. Most of all, we had passion and we had belief, and our film shows that if you have those two things, truly anything is possible. I want to thank, on a personal note, my mum and my dad for all their love and support over the years. I want to thank my girl, Saskia Mulder, who's my partner in crime and the light in my life, and I want to thank all of you very much indeed. Thank you. Anyway, this movie I did three days in a row. I sat down for a couple hours each day and just tried to read about this movie and do research on it. So I got a lot to say. On a budget of 15 million, Slumdog grossed 378.1 internationally. Took home eight Academy Awards. The only award it didn't win was Best Sound Editing, which went to Dark Knight. And it technically both won and lost for Best Original Song because Jai Ho and Osaya were uh, both nominated. The former winning the Oscar. Western critics seem to love this movie. The late Roger Ebert among them, he gave this movie four stars, called it breathless, exciting, heartbreaking, and exhilarating, and proclaimed that the movie was going to be a window into the real India for Western audiences. Wall Street Journal kind of echoed that sentiment, called it the film world's first globalized masterpiece. And in fact, the word masterpiece gets thrown around by more than one major American newspaper in reference to this film. And with the exception of a few outliers, a lot of the critics felt similarly. It made over one third of its gross here in the United States, 141 mil. Uh, in the UK, it made 52. And then the next markets, top markets are France, Spain, Germany, and Australia. Out of all the Asian markets, Japanese audiences turned out the most. Can you guess how much it earned in India? It made 158 million rupees, 158.6 million rupees, which is the approximate 2009 equivalent of $3.65 million. So just for perspective, it made 6.39 million and 6.21 million in Mexico and Brazil, respectively. So why didn't a country known for its prolific cinematic contributions, a country of 1.36 billion people, turn out for a movie about them? It's a tough question. There are pages and pages of analysis and criticism on this movie, and quite a lot of it has to do with how it was perceived rather than the film itself. So believe me, I know that I'm veering here, but I think it's necessary. And if you don't agree that it's necessary, consider if India made a movie about Americans, starring Americans, shot in America, it became wildly successful, making its way onto 262 best of lists from 2008, landing the top spot on 54 of those, winning eight Oscars, seven BAFTAs, and earning 378 Point one million worldwide. I'm willing to bet there'd be a fair amount of Americans who might feel a certain way about that. So off rip, it's a movie that deals heavily with the economic inequities of India's social castes and features more than its share of poverty porn imagery. Not my words, but all the more true for the fact. Being as this is a British film, these images kind of take on this piteous gaze. One guilt-ridden Westerners took to and ultimately appreciated when in the end, your protagonists, Jamal and uh, Lakita, come together and live wealthy ever after. I mean, even the goddamn plot device, who wants to be a millionaire? And we argued whether or not this was a plot device or a MacGuffin or a set piece or a clock. Yeah, no, I think in the end, it's a, it's a clock, just so the audience knows that eventually this film will end. Even the goddamn plot clock of who wants to be a millionaire is an example of Western influence or encroachment upon Indian culture. I used to watch the American version of the show. The older that I got, the more vulgar that 
show feels. And I now I can't honestly think about it without thinking about Rage Against the Machine's music video for Sleep Now in the Fire. Here's an actual response from a theater goer in India, um, a guy named Manpreet Singh. He said, it's a good film, no doubt. The narrative style and the plot are interesting. But if I speak for Indians like me, there's nothing new in it for us. It's saturated with stereotyped images of India. And he attributes a lot or at least a part of the film's success to the fact that India is the flavor of the season. People want to know about this country of 9% growth and enormous variety. People want to see what makes India tick. And I think that's a fair piece of criticism. All the more interesting that it comes from just a random Indian film goer. There are several different sources which point to Slumdog as weaker and less effective in showing the Indian slums than Miranair's Salam Bombay and Amir Khan's uh, Peeply Live, among others. Nair and Khan have both shared opinions on why they feel Slumdog misses the mark. Uh, Nair said the following, we would never have used the name Slumdog. It would not occur to us because even in casual conversation, we wouldn't think of calling a street child a dog. Obviously, it did not come from the soil or from where these children live. It was from a different perspective. And on the George Strombolopoulos show, Amir Khan said that although he loves Danny and thinks he's a tremendous filmmaker, he's not Indian and therefore Slumdog doesn't proffer an Indian perspective. It's the Eastern world for Westerners. And there's that word in both of those uh, separate interviews perspective. And that's what it comes down to. Both these filmmakers and a random cinema goer felt it. And maybe I did too. It's probably arrogant to claim since I've never been to India, but for serious, there's a nagging feeling that you're watching a fantasy, but something more egregiously far-fetched than Gump or Benjamin Button. I think calling it a fairy tale would be too basic. It's almost like somebody playing with toys. So, you know, the fact that so many Indians did not feel the film was representative of the real India, no matter what Ebert says, no matter how mobile the camera is, and I like the cinematography, no matter how many accolades this movie made, the perspective is ultimately a Western one. And that's why the Academy gave it Best Picture. That and it's got the happy ending. Did you know that in, in Bollywood, they make an average of a thousand movies a year, which puts them uh, about 400 over the average amount of movies that Hollywood puts out a year. Um, might be because the average Bollywood film is... A little bit less expensive, costing one and a half million dollars to produce, which is obviously a fraction of the average. The average Hollywood film budget at budgets at 45 mil. Only about 4% of the estimated 1.3 billion people in India actually go to the movies on a regular basis. And India has never won an Oscar for best foreign film. Yet, two movies about India made by Westerners have won best picture. This, and can you name the other one? Gandhi. You got it. And they both took home best director for their British directors, Richard Attenborough for Gandhi and Danny Boyle for this. I did yeah. my I did my research, huh? You're like, uh <laughs> There's something strange in my eyes, and this is all conjecture. I wrote a low budget film and the film quadrupled its budget because I had two children in it. It went from five hundred thousand dollar film to a two million, two point one million dollar film because of the two children and everything else that they were gonna come with when it came to their tutors and and whatnot. The fact that this film, with the production and value it has, was such a low budget, and yet it's set in a country known for cheap ex- exploitative labor. I have to wonder. And that's that's me wondering, that's conjecture. I haven't read anything that says everybody got paid bottom the bottom penny but i feel like maybe and the other thing that i don't like about the all right wait before we get to let me say i enjoy this movie (laughs) i think it's beautiful well edited one reviewer said the cut back and forth ruined the tension and i think that's a horrible take this is a well-paced very well acted well-written movie agreed 
वेलकम बैक टू हु वॉन्ट्स टू बी अ मिलनर आई कैन सेफली से दैट टू नाइट इज द बिगेस्ट नाइट ऑफ बोथ आर लाइफ जमाल मलिक कॉल सेंटर वर्कर फ्रॉम मुंबई हैज ऑलरेडी वन ही कैन वॉक अवे विथ दैट इन दिस पॉकेट ऑफ मेक द बिगेस्ट कैम्बल इन टेलीविजन हिस्ट्री एंड गो फॉर द फाइनल क्वेश्चन एंड अ स्टैगरिंग ट्वेंटी मिलियन रुपीज Are you ready for that question? Yes. Big read are you, Jamal? I can read. Lucky. In Alexander Dumas book The Three Musketeers Two of the musketeers are called Athos and Porthos What was the name of the third musketeer Ajay beta andar aajo beta Ramis B Cardinal Richelieu C Tartanian or D Machet फाइनल क्वेश्चन फॉर ट्वेंटी मिलियन रुपीज एंड ई स्माइलिंग आई गेस यू नो दंसर यू बिलीव इट आई डोंट आई डोंट नो हाउ अ स्क्रीन प्ले लूसली बेस्ड ऑन समथिंग ऑल्सो विन्स बेस्ट अडेप्टेड स्क्रीन प्ले शुड बेस्ट अडेप्टेड मीन दैट वी टक द वर्क एंड वी मेड आई गेस मे बी दैट्स इट दे मेड द बेस्ट वर्क दे मेड द बेस्ट फिल्म बेस्ड ऑफ ऑफ द प्रायर सोर्स मटेरियल वेल क्यूरियस केस वॉज अप फॉर अडेप्टेड एंड दैट वॉज ब्लोन अप फ्रॉम अ फोर्टी एट पेज नवेला और शॉर्ट स्टोरी जूरी स्टिल आउट ऑन दैट डिस्टिंगशन There will be blood, which we talked about in episode one, was based on Upton Sinclair's oil, but very loosely based, and that was another adapted screenplay. Mm-hmm. So, well, this is the other thing that I wanted to say. There's a certain ickiness to the imperial British colonizers telling us the story of the Indian slums. Sure, American and British audiences didn't notice what might be wrong with this because one of the first psychological characteristics of white privilege is seeing the world through the eyes of the historically recent victors. So we let Danny Boyle, a British man who. says he studied indian cinema and simon bofoy who visited who said he visited india three times to research and quote even talked to kids on the street end quote these are the two men telling you the story of the indian slums it's like i said when lambasting disney's princess and the frog can we produce and award authentic art art made by the people from the top down it's only interesting that what hollywood said was the reason princess and the frog performed poorly at the box office was that princess was in the title right what well, just so happens that they complained it was the same problem for slum dog millionaire in india was what i quote trade analyst komal nata commenting there was a problem with the title itself slum dog is not a familiar word for majority indians so hollywood said that the reason that slum dog millionaire performed poorly was because of a word in the title which was the same excuse that they gave for princess and the frog i don't understand why they would think that that would crash a movie well i mean mira nair uh, said essentially the same thing she said that's not she didn't say that's an unfamiliar word she's saying that's a word that we wouldn't use it's a word that didn't come from this soil but interestingly 
So the guy that plays Jamal's actor idol, Feroz Khan, the one that he crawls through poopy to, to get his autograph, um, that actor's name is Amitabh Bakan. He's a very big name in Bollywood. Interestingly enough, was the original host of India's Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which apparently resurrected his career. For Mickey Rourke, it was The Wrestler, and for Bakan, it was Millionaire, but whatever. Before the movie even came out in India, he posted a blog um, saying, it's just the Slumdog Millionaire idea authored by an Indian and conceived and cinematically put together by a Westerner gets creative global recognition. The other would perhaps not. And Bakan's blog led to, quote, an avalanche of Bollywood stars and critics taking positions for and against him. Nine days after he posted it, there were 40 slum dwellers protesting outside the Mumbai Mumbai home of actor Anil Kapoor, the guy that played uh, the host Prem Kumar of uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And the protesters held these signs that said, I am not a dog, referring to slum dog in the film's title, and poverty for sale. A slum leader in the central Indian city of Patna took the Indian cast and crew of the film to court for allegedly offending slum dwellers with the pejorative in the title. So he said he didn't expect any better of the British people associated with the film because their ancestors called Indians dogs anyway, but that the Indians should have known better. So that sounds like there are some conflicting. Some people are like the, you know, the quote you found where it's like, what, is, what even is this term? And then for others, clearly they're familiar with it, or at least the dog part. And so, okay, Americans don't get the deep rooted divide between the British and the Indian. Like we barely know our own history. So, if you still don't understand, Slumdog Millionaire is if Damien Chazelle wrote and directed a comical and colorful story about African-American youth escaping physical, emotional, and racial abuse of a Mississippi bayous by becoming, say, TikTok stars. <laughs> like, I understand why Americans wouldn't understand why this is antithetical, but I'm glad that we are doing this show to show that while this was an entertaining movie for all of us to go and watch, India wasn't really happy. <laughs> well, I think we can cap off our discussion on this. I agree with you. It is an entertaining and well-made movie, but I think if you're going to make a movie about a country other than your own, you better get it right. You know, and people will argue and be like, well, this was never meant to be a documentary. It's like, well, then why does it feel like it's trying to be in the first hour? And that's fine, but the Academy shouldn't have awarded it best picture. Agreed. Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Frost, Nixon, Milk, and The Reader. I feel like we should talk about one of these films now because I don't think it deserved a nomination. I bet I know which one you want to talk about. All right, let's see if you can. Out of those, which one should we just eliminate? Um, Frost, Nixon. Yeah, yes. <laughs> uh -huh. Good evening. I shall resign the presidency at noon tomorrow. This is an historic day, the only time a president has ever resigned from office. Nixon knew about the Watergate cover-up. The man who has committed the greatest felony in American history will never stand trial. I've had an idea for an interview, Richard Nixon. You're a talk show host. I spent yesterday watching you interview the Bee Gees. When they terrific. Why would I want to talk to David Frost? I got half a million dollars. Really? <laughs> Frost has hired three crack investigators. Can I be crack one? Can I be deep crack? <laughs> Can I shake his hand? After everything he's done in this country? Are you kidding me? Oh, pleasure to meet you. Mr. President. That was devastating. I mean, I don't think he's ever going to get over that. 
Frost is just not in your class, sir. You're going to be able to rebuild your reputation. This entire project is a joke. I do hope that isn't coming out of your own pocket. I wish my pockets were that deep. I'm in this for everything I've got. There's a reason they call him Tricky Dick. You stand by to roll tape. You had a pleasant evening last night? Uh, yes. Four, three, two. To do any fornicating. And Hugh David. The American people need a conviction. I'd like to give Richard Nixon the trial he never had. Democracy depends on it. We're not gonna let that happen. We're gonna make them choke on power and glory. Why didn't you burn the tapes? I didn't want to take any questions on Watergate. Shut it down. I will ruin you if it takes the rest of my life. What have I done? If in this interview, Nixon exonerates himself poor, that would be the worst crime of all. Three, two, Hugh David. Are you really saying the president can do something illegal? I'm saying that when the president does it, that means it's not illegal. I'm sorry. Frost Nixon is a dramatization of David Frost's endeavor to break out of his talky, showy, hosty persona and take on a real interview with uh, former President Richard Nixon. But the movie is really just all right. It should have been great, but I think Frank Langella, first of all, was too much for uh, Michael Sheen to keep up with. Um, Bacon, Platt, and Rockwell are all solid, but director Ron Howard tries staging this like a documentary made years after the fact, and it's, it's weird and it doesn't work. Not to mention the amount of handheld work, which I think is Ron Howard's attempt to add realism only succeeds in making me motion sick. But the movie's really only worth it, in my opinion, for Langella. Langella is amazing in this movie. And then also, to bring up another Nixon film, Oliver Stone's 1995 Nixon, in the case of that movie and this movie, I found myself kind of feeling bad for old Tricky Dick. And here, it's obviously, it's because of Langella. I think I prefer this Nixon over Stone's. That line that he says to David Frost, How was your evening? Good. Did you fornicate? <laughs> Fucking... Bat shit crazy. So you have shit on Ron Howard in the past in season yes. one. I think I probably an will again. Emily. <laughs> but you did text me. You think this is one of his best works. What would you say is his best movie? So you're not going to like this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. Um, yes and no. So I don't know if this is the time to reveal this or not. But in 2017, I think I watched all the best picture winners ever and picked out like my favorite of the decade. Like in the 1950s, it was all about Eve was my favorite. In the 2000s, it was A Beautiful Mind was probably my favorite Best Picture winner. But if we're talking about Ron Howard and my favorite film that he did, I think A Beautiful Mind would be within the top three, included with Apollo 13 and Cinderella Man. But so as far as Frost Nixon is concerned, it's funny talking about Nixon in cinema. And I think the best part wasn't in either movie, but in the trailer for Stone's Nixon. How much more is it going to cost? When do the rest of us stop paying off your debts? This is Nixon's finish. And that was 
out of these two movies, that part of the trailer and how it was cut is probably my favorite thing. Right um, I didn't like that film, and I was pretty bored with this one. And I think this is only in the top five because, as we know, at this time in the Academy, before all the hashtag Oscars so white, the average voter at this time was a 60-year-old white dude who lived during this time and probably really appreciated reliving something from their young adulthood. So that being said... So we're going to take away a nomination from Frost Nixon, and we're going to give it to someone else. Two films, I think, are deserving for the top spot. One of them, spoiler alert, is the one that we're going to award for the year, and the other one is The Wrestler. Great to meet you. One, two, bam! Really good. You really brought it. Thank you. Thank you. You hang in there. You got a lot of ability. Have you ever seen a one-trick pony and feel so happy and free? If you ever well, I was wondering if I could get some more work. All I got is weekends. Isn't that when you sit on other dudes' faces? Have you ever seen a one-legged dog? You have a beer with me? <laughs> one beer. If you ever seen you have a daughter? No, oh, my daughter, she don't like me very much. You should call her. And you seen me? I'm an old, broken-down piece of meat, and I deserve to be all alone. I just don't want you to hate me. Two words. Three. Match. Bring it. You know, with a little luck, this could be my ticket back on top. 80s man, best ever. Guns N' Roses. Crew. Yeah, then that Cobain had to come around and ruin it all. <laughs> 90 sucks. 90 sucks. These things that have comforted me, I drive away. My only faith's in the broken bones and bruises I display. You know, the only place I get hurt is out there. I'm really here. This life, you lose everything you love, everything that loves you. A lot of people told me that I'd never wrestle again. The only one who are going to tell me when I'm through doing my thing is you people here. Tell me, what do you think? What do you think about this? <laughs> eh? That'll work. Come here. <laughs> ah. I think The Wrestler is one of the top five films of the year. I'm, I'm down with that. All right. Let's get into it for the people that do not know. Well, actually, we have, I would say, and I called him this and he kind of refuted it, but I was like, we have a mutual friend who is a wrestling, I would say, expert. And so I, I got his opinion on it. Here is my co-host of Second Chance Cinema, MC, with his view on The Wrestler. In the studio now of Second Chance Cinema with my co- or my host. I would say you're the host. I say I'm the co-host of Second Chance Cinema, MC. MC, I think, is my, I would say you're my wrestling expert as a friend. And when it comes to this movie, The Wrestler, which is, I think, one of the uh, most in-depth takes of the life of a retired wrestler. I just want to get your thoughts on it as a wrestler. I mean, I, I've seen you wrestle. I went to your matches as Backstreet. What was your take when watching the film? So 
my experience with wrestling has been unique. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Unique and um, for a good portion of my life. The Wrestler was not a movie about wrestling. It was a movie about redemption and it was a movie about loneliness and it was a movie about finding peace, I think. And that's why it connected with people. Wrestling in that movie was the vessel that acted as kind of a novelty I think that drew people in and got them to experience the character of Randy the Ram. There hadn't been a movie about wrestling that was done in the style of this movie. Lest we forget No Holds Barred, <laughs> which, um, <laughs> you know, as, as much <laughs> as the studios and the companies that produced that movie wanted you to believe it was going to be a big hit and potentially win an Oscar. Uh, no, this movie uh, was the first time that wrestling was the focal point in such a way that I feel like it was universal to any sort of has been celebrity or peak performer. You could have very easily transposed Randy Mickey Rourke's Randy the Ram with an aging past his prime rock star, uh, an athlete from another sport. And what you would have gotten is the same journey of this, this kind of misplaced hope and um, belief that one day you're going to return back to the top combined with this flawed character who in the end redeems himself, but not in the eyes of the other supporting characters in the eyes of his fans. And the way that he's portrayed in this movie and the way that his, the way that Mickey Rourke acts and presents this character, you start to realize that he's a lonely, lonely man, except for when he's in front of these nameless, essentially faceless fans. And when it comes to the culmination of that movie, he makes peace by doing his thing in front of them. The only people who've ever truly loved him on a level that's meaningful. And I think that the fact that it was wrestling, I said novelty earlier, that might be a little bit that might be a little bit harsh, but but I think people were intrigued by this movie because it was wrestling. I think there's this mystery and there's this intrigue and there's this kind of behind the curtain aspect of wrestling that made people curious. And once they went in and sat down, they were just completely enthralled by this character that Mickey Rourke portrayed on the screen. Damn, that was really good. <laughs> is that is that good? So Marissa Tomei's character arc in that movie was there's this great set of scenes where it's first it's Randy the Ram doing his thing as a wrestler and he's in the back taping up and then he comes out through the curtain people cheer for him and he goes and does his thing then there's another scene where he's working in the supermarket and he's in the back putting on his hairnet putting on his apron he comes through the the like butcher's curtain um the same way nobody reacts nobody gives a shit who he is but it's obviously a parallel to his former life. And Marissa Tomei's character, uh, I forget her name. I think it's Cassidy, uh, or uh, that's her That's her stripper yeah, name. Yeah, Cassidy, Cassidy and Pam. Pam, that's right, Pam. Pam Cassidy, she has this, and, and that's a perfect segue because she has this double identity too, the same way Mickey Rourke is Randy the Ram, and then regular guy behind the deli counter, she's Pam the mom, and then Cassidy the stripper. So it's a movie that's a lot about duality and the identity that you choose to ultimately represent you and define who you are. Awesome. Awesome stuff. I guess I have just one question for you remaining. Hit me. Before they casted Mickey Rourke, the studio really wanted Nicolas Cage. <clears throat> Would it be the same movie? <laughs> 
Um, look, Nicolas Cage is a phenomenal actor and his Randy the Ram would have been different. I feel like it would have been more eclectic and more bombastic. And I don't know that that would have been the best way to deliver the themes of that movie. Mickey Rourke's Randy the Ram was subtle, was nuanced, was humble, was gentle, and was ultimately tragic. And I think that, you know, I've, I've, I've certainly read the stories where Nicolas Cage says, you know, they made the right choice with Mickey Rourke. It's the same way with The Dark Knight. You can't imagine anyone but Heath Ledger in the role of the Joker. I would say the same thing for Mickey Rourke in this movie. It's just a perfectly executed performance. Nice. Thanks, man. Yeah, no absolutely. Problem. That no was problem. amazing. Well, The Wrestler is a Darren Aronofsky film. Um, Requiem for a Dream, Pie, Noah, The Fountain, Black Swan. Uh, this movie feels like a less terrifying version of Black Swan, which Aronofsky would go on to make two years later. Both of these are intense profiles of performers who are like headed for a fall, to quote Salinger. Uh, a fall of their own making. But where Black Swan examines the damning psychological effects of ambition and pressure on uh, Natalie Portman, the wrestler looks at the lasting effects of vanity, indulgence, selfishness. And despite how bad we feel for Randy the Ram Robinson, he lives in a hell of his own making. I, I think the real tragedy of this film for me is that he gets a shot at a, compa- a companionship, which it seems like that's what he wants for a minute. When Pam shows up first at his home and again, right before he heads down the ramp to what might be the final match of his career. And she says that line, I'm here, I'm really here. I do want to talk about Tomei because Mickey Rourke as as Randy the, the Ram is fantastic, but she was overshadowed by how everyone was like, oh, this is Rourke's comeback and all this stuff. Not only is her performance fantastic, but her character is w- really well written, I think. I don't know how to write a female character genuinely, but Rob Smeagol did a pretty good job. Smeagol? Smeagol? Probably Smeagol and not Smeagol. <laughs> Cassidy is at first glance this like washed up stripper with a heart of gold. And when she sheds her quote unquote in ring persona, she makes herself vulnerable to him and it scares the hell out of her. She has that line where she says, you think I'm like this stripper, but I'm not. I'm a mom with responsibilities. I find that that line really overtly profound. But again, yeah, these two are performers who debase and degrade themselves for crowds. And they're both lonely. They both pine for a time past, kind of have issues with the world passing them by. They mirror each other really well. And Tomei is so good. And uh, I like that that part where uh, they first see each other out in the world. And Randy says, I almost didn't recognize you. You look all clean. The face that Tomei makes is amazing when she goes clean. She asks it with this like super realistic mixture of insult, indignance, and a little bit of pain. When you talk about Marissa Tomei and the Oscars, the first thing that pops up is the fact that everybody thinks that she stole her award when it came to My Cousin Vinny. I was just reading an article of, I think they like over 100 Academy voters were re-interviewed about some mistakes that they may have made in the past, which we will correct some that we agree with. But one thing that came up was, did Marissa Tomei deserve the Oscar for My Cousin Vinny? And they unequivocally said yes, that and really, I think she doesn't, she never mails it in. All of her performances are amazing. This one, I think, much like Mickey Rourke, much like everything in this movie, it is stripped of all vanity, even though, you know, Marissa Tomei is a beautiful woman. And if you watch this film, you won't be able to take your eyes away from her and you might develop a crap. But like, <laughs> 
as dressed down as this film is, she is still giving a performance that you can't look away from. And that's what I like about Aronofsky's work is it's unapologetically real you know like it's not he's not putting the camera on these specific people and their problems to make a dollar he's doing it to show you a slice of life that you probably either have never seen or experienced or thought of in a general way we should just mention that Rourke was probably born to play this role it's a cliche but I mean the man was in and out of the squared circle not as a wrestler but as an amateur boxer um they even used in the movie his entrance song. He would come out to fights to Guns N' Roses' Sweet Child of Mine. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to be superficial when I bring this up, but the drastic changes to his face pre and post 1990s are because he had several reconstructive surgeries after boxing injuries. So, like the Ram, Rourke has this history with pain. And like Ram, he's got a lot of admirers. Ram's got his fans, and Rourke, nobody says a bad thing about Rourke. I mean, he was sought after for so many movies that he turned down 48 Hours, Platoon, Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop, Rain Man, Silence of the Lambs, and Tarantino wanted him to play Butch in Pulp Fiction, the role that eventually went to Bruce Willis. But that would have been interesting. And when he lost Best Actor to Sean Penn for Milk, Penn singled Rourke out above everybody else, calling him courageous and sensitive and his brother. Anyway, the entire cast of this movie is amazing. Todd Berry, too, as the grocery store manager that he catches touching himself in the... It's a tough scene. Um, not to mention all the actual wrestlers and during the locker room scenes. Those are non-acting actors. I mean, they're they're actors in the sense that they're wrestlers. But the locations for the movie are these rundown, depressed shells of a once illustrious career, the glory days. So yeah. So I think the first thing that is surprising about the wrestlers just not the fact that, it, or is just the fact that it's an Aronofsky film. And in the same instant, it's not. Aronofsky makes films that make you uncomfortable, but in a dark fairy tale kind of way. And this film is more steeped in realism than most of it is. And yet you start to feel uncomfortable with it. And the way they put the movie together, you start realizing you're thinking like the character by the time he's working the deli counter and someone recognizes him and he's cutting meat. And before it happens, you're starting to cringe because you and him are having the same thought of it would just be so easy to make a mistake here and get out of this uncomfortable situation. Man, when he rubs all that blood on his face, it's fucked up. That part is fucked up, man. But this was one of those years where multiple actors put up great performances. And I think everyone might agree that Rourke and Penn were interchangeable for best actor. They could not have gone wrong selecting either. Uh, And on a personal note, when it came to watching The Wrestler, it made me feel and think about along the same lines of what Minari did last year, which was about personal success. And where Minari dealt with a man trying to achieve his own personal success, the wrestler has a man trying to redefine himself after his own success and his inability to let the good times go. So in true Aronofsky fashion, he almost makes you feel like success is a bad thing because once achieved, it makes the rest of life dull. Or maybe maybe that's just what I got from it. But seriously, this kind of introspection is what I would want a film nominated for Best Picture to do. Yeah, I don't know why. I guess because Frost Nixon is about America's history and it's made by Opie. That's why they... <laughs> I, I, I Genuinely, I, that's those are the only things that I can think of why it got the nomination over The Wrestler. But wrong pick. Good opinions all around. Nice to hear from MC. I remember when we were in high school and uh, he would wrestle on like the east in like the east side of town. I always wanted to go and see him, but I could I could never get out to the to the east side of Cleveland to see him. But 
It was pretty amazing. And really watching him wrestle pointed me to something that I love to do in life, which is I love to watch the people that I love doing the things that they love. Um, Okay, so we're taking Frost Nixon out. We're putting in The Wrestler. The next film that I would say I understand why it was nominated, but I personally would not have nominated. But it was David Fincher's The Curious Case of Benjamin Button starring Brad Pitt based off of the F. Scott Fitzgerald short story. My name is Benjamin Button, and I was born under unusual circumstances. While everybody else was aging, I was getting younger, all alone. Novella. Novella. (laughs) I don't know what that... How long should a, is a short story before it becomes a novella? I don't know. I, 50, I, 58 pages, you said, is the length of this story? 46. Okay, that still sounds like a novella, but I could or be wrong. 48, 48, yeah. Okay. Let's get into it. Well, uh, let's just get the bad out of the way. Pitt's miscast. Do you agree? Yes. Okay. Ish. I don't know. Uh, I mean, he's, yes. He's, he's miscast. It's his, his shitty accent. <laughs> But I assume in order to get this picture off the ground, Fincher needed a name. Fincher and Pitt worked together multiple times, or twice already before this movie. Um, and the budget was reportedly $150 million, so I understand. Eric Roth's script feels very gumpy, which I suppose should be expected since the man also wrote the adaptation for Forrest Gump. And I'm sure that Fincher took a hacksaw to the script, and I'm sure that Roth himself more than likely revised like a bastard, but they tried to do too much in this movie. And unfortunately, I think some really stupid lines got into the the shooting script and then into the final product. 13 years ago, I saw this in the theater and I didn't really get what Fincher was trying to do. And as I get older, I still don't really get what he's trying to do. (laughs) The aging stuff affects me, you know, getting close to 40 here. So the aging stuff affects me differently now than it did 13 years ago. But I still don't understand what the theme is, if there is one. What's what's good we can say about this movie? Well, even when Fincher makes a movie like this, which I would argue is more for himself or even his father and less for an audience, I think he still produces elite material. Just like we would say about Martin Scorsese, any year he releases a movie, it's in the top five. So I feel the same way about Fincher. I'll defend Mank and this. Curious case- defend bringing out the dead? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just watched... <laughs> you dick. <laughs> I just watched that for the first time, like last year. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a weird one. <laughs> um, but Curious Case feels like something that Spielberg might have made in a different timeline. Would you agree? Oh yeah. What cannot be denied is it's a sprawling epic, which could be good or bad depending on your angle. I happen to like long movies. I wish more people did too. And it's strange the people that I mean, even I will complain sometimes about runtimes, but it feels like movies are just getting longer and longer. <laughs> But the same asshole who complains about the length of a movie is going to turn around, and I've been this asshole, and watch eight straight long, uh, hour-long episodes of, t- of a TV show without batting an eye. But I also love the romance angle, that like rip your heart out of your chest, melancholy, English patienty, And this one's really sad. I mean, it leaves you with a powerful feeling of melancholy that I, I cannot discern beyond my own fears of aging and death and the constant worry that I am not cherishing the time that I have with my wife. 
And like Fincher's previous film, Zodiac, I mean, the man makes every set piece, every setup, every moment, every prop, every costume. I mean, he is such a perfectionist and surrounds himself with such talented people that he, whose skill and output are up to his standards, people that he trusts. He never, never settles for anything less than as absolutely close to perfect as he can get. Obviously, he doesn't always get there, but I don't know. Since rewatching it, I, I can't stop thinking about the bookends, the backwards clock from Mr. Ghetto, and the wish to rewind the moments, bring back the dead. And then that final shot, that old clock replaced and forgotten, still ticking away in reverse, stuffed in that basement storage somewhere as it's consumed by the raging waters of Hurricane Katrina and the closing notes of Scott Joplin's Bethina tinking gently away. It's just stunning. And that's not the way it's written in the copy of the script that I found. Uh, I'm almost positive it was was Finch's idea and it was a good one. I did not like this film and I won't talk too much about it. I think you covered pretty much all that was good and all that was bad. I do want to point out, I guess I'm probably one of those assholes that thinks over two hours is getting to be a little too long for films. F. Scott's novella that this is based on is 48 pages long. And that's 48 pages turned into a two hour and 47 minute film. And it's funny because maybe it's because I am a film student, a professional screenwriter, I can call myself. And it's beaten into our heads that our script should be less than 120 pages. And a a method to think about scripts to film is every page is a minute. That isn't always true. A Sorkin script with its rapid paced dialogue could be 150 pages for a hour and 40 minute film. But overall... That's the translation. Um, Another reason that I might not like films being over two hours is that the structure that we put towards film usually rings where your midpoint, the point where plan A fails and the protagonist finds a different path, is about an hour in. So if that is our midpoint, does that mean that your front half is running long or the back half? Either way, if we're fashion as an audience, because this is traditionally how structures work out and whether you know it or not, you're subconsciously following a film for these points. We are fashioned as an audience to give this essential point of the story an hour. So something is going to feel too long, whether it's the back half or the front half. The movie would have to be amazing for us not to notice because it's actually quite natural. So should someone produce a longer than 90 minute to two hour movie and it feels long, you have to, in a way, believe they thought they were making an amazing movie where you wouldn't notice. Not only did they make a boring movie, they made one believing it was amazing, which seems sad in a, in a way. To me, Curious Case of Benjamin Button is not Fincher's worst movie. That wasn't a fact for me until about a year ago, personally. But you're right in all things visual. Actually, one of one of the people that own one of my the options to one of my scripts was one of the special effects artists for Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And I just want to make it known that I love the visual effects of Curious Case of Benjamin Button. That's not what I'm coming down on when it comes to this film. I think it could have been a masterstroke of storytelling if he realized, first and foremost, the original storyteller did not believe that the story warranted a long telling. I think that's fair. I think my favorite point that you made is, and you could phrase it a couple different ways, but not only did they make a boring movie, they made one believing that it was amazing. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I just think it probably got away from them a little bit. Moving on, I think the next strongest film of the year was the Kate Winslet vehicle, The Reader. Why don't you start by being honest with me? I've never told anyone. Maybe you should. 
When I was young, I had an affair. She was a friend of yours? A kind of friend. She liked being read to. You never tell me what you've been studying. I'm studying a play. You can read it. I'd rather listen to you. Sing to me of the man, Muse. The man of twists, twists and turns, driven time and again off course. Why do you leave early? You always leave early. The affair only lasted a summer. I can't live without you. Even the thought of it kills me. Do you love me? Excuse me? I'm looking for Hannah Schmitz. Schmitz has left. Left? Did she say where she was going? Silence in the court! I'm going to take these cases one by one. My name is Hannah Schmitz. You joined the SS in 1943. They were looking for guards. I was a law student. I remember very clearly. Societies think they operate by morality, but they don't. Each of the guards would choose a certain number of women. In the evening, Hannah Schmitz asked them to join her. She was making these women read aloud to her. You keep telling us to think like lawyers. What are we trying to do? We are trying to understand. Look at that woman. Which woman? The woman you're always staring at. I don't know which woman you mean. Did she acknowledge the effect she'd had on your life? She had done much worse to other people. You were picking women out and saying, you and you and you have to be sent back to be killed. No, no. I've spent much time thinking about the past. The dead are still dead. How wrong can you be? While I watched it in two different sections, I must say I really, really enjoyed this one. And this is a very tough movie about a very tough subject matter for those that don't know. It's about the after effects of World War II. Kate Winslet is on trial along with four or five other women who are being prosecuted for the burning down of a church which with about 300 Jews inside. You learn that they were guards for the Nazi regime. It opens, though, with a kind of almost probably, yeah, cringy love story between a grown woman and a teenage boy. She has sex with him if he reads to her. This is a very tough movie. It's a tough watch, but it's handled with a delicacy that I loved. The same delicacy that was the reason critics railed against this movie. It deals with Nazis in a way that makes you see them as human. Really, that's it. Kate Winslet does such a good job in this role that an audience member feels somewhat uncomfortable feeling a twinge of sympathy for a Nazi. But all in all, this is what I love about the movie. Should I, I should, I ridiculously have to, I bet, say nothing about what the Nazis did was good. All right. They're okay. a bunch of murdering fuckheads. Okay. Let me put that out right now. Front the Holocaust. Yeah. The Holocaust is a festering black spot in human history. But dear God, everybody involved in the Holocaust were people. And we as people are stupid if we don't acknowledge that nobody living in their skin in Germany thought themselves as bad people at the time. This this is the perplexing quandary we must teach today, I believe. If you're alive in this moment, at this time, and feeling you are on the right side of things, you feel exactly like a Nazi did at that time. 
And that's fucking mind blowing to me. And sure, we could sit back and go, well, we're not setting up American concentration camps and walking as the ashes fall. And no, you would be absolutely right. But if you're only paying attention to foreign policy when a person you didn't vote for is in the White House, my God, are you missing some things? Regardless, this movie is exactly what I want in Something at the Top, a film that makes you think outside of yourself, a story told from an original point of view, expertly crafted with nary a flaw to find. I think the only thing I didn't like about this movie is I, as a war blooded male like into <laughs> I like intimacy I respect it and weirdly I like to build to it this movie is very sex heavy in the beginning so if I was to critique it I would say it felt top heavy as far as physical emotions go but I truly did enjoy the reader I did too more on the second viewing than on my first I didn't remember a lot of it and I think I, I may have just been watching too many movies too quickly to process it all back then but I've been turning this one over in my head since I watched it I, I would disagree with you I would I would flip-flop curious case and the reader, but that's just my personal quibble with you. I do have one little quibble with the film. I think the judge in the movie was absolutely crackers for entertaining the accusations the other defendants made against Hannah. And that dramatic scene where she refuses to write, Michael realizes in the moment that she's illiterate and she just takes the blame. I don't know. I, I just can't believe that Hannah's impulse to save her own life and reputation would be um, weaker than her shame of being unable to read and write. But I don't know. Anyway, the judge sentences her to life and the other defendants are sentenced to a couple of years. I, I just don't. That's my little quibble. Doesn't seem realistic to me. I do have to say I was a little more shocked the second time by all the sex. More than that, it was pretty jarring to learn that David Cross with a K, uh, the boy that plays Michael, was 17 when they started shooting. They shot as much of the film as they could while Cross was still a minor. And then as soon as he turned 18, they began shooting all the sex scenes. It's quite an introduction to adulthood for his character and for him. I just imagine him like coming to set being like, what are we doing today? And the assistant director's like, so today and pretty much for the next two weeks, you and Kate are going to be having sex. Oh, and happy birthday, by the way. Um, it's a it's a melancholy film. Winslet kills it, but really Winslet always kills it. And despite her awkward backpedaling on Woody Allen, to her credit, Winslet didn't thank Harvey Weinstein in her Oscar acceptance speech, like so many actresses before her and after her and actors and everybody thanks the motherfucker. And it wasn't for any sexual transgressions, but it was just she found him absolutely repugnant to work with. So allegedly, director Stephen Daldry wanted more time to work on the film, but Weinstein was insistent upon releasing it in late 2008 so it could get Oscar nods. And he went so far as to badger Sidney Pollack, um, one of the producers and the legendary director, Sidney Pollack, badger him on his deathbed and the widow of Anthony Minghella, who was also a producer on the film, which is interesting that both of them died in and around the, the making of this. This is all according to producer Scott Rudin, who clashed so much with Weinstein that he ended up taking his name off the film. But can you imagine Rudin and Weinstein on the same production? Those two fat assholes like pot belly to pot belly screaming at each other. <laughs> but in any event, Winslet called Weinstein nasty, rude, unpleasant, and not well-behaved. And she said that the fact that I'm never going to have to deal with Harvey Weinstein again as long as I live is one of the best things that's ever happened. And I'm sure the feeling is universal. That's all I got to say about the reader. <laughs> so the next film, Milk. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. If homosexuals are allowed their civil rights, then so would prostitutes or thieves or anyone else. 40 years old and I haven't done a thing. I'm not going to be forced out of San Francisco by social deviants and incorrigibles. We need one of our own in office. We could have a revolution here. 
I don't do losing. There she is, our new campaign manager. You all scared of girls. Ah! You'll be the first openly gay man elected to major office. I think you're part of the machine now. Society can't exist without the family. We're not against that. Can two men reproduce? No, but God knows we keep trying. <laughs> if these people are going to live a life of such open homosexuality, they are going to be removed from their job. We're going to beat this thing. We need everyone. We lose this. We'll have anti-gay laws in all 50 states. Like most homosexuals, I am. Do you know a lot of homosexuals, Dan? Harvey Milk. You will be stabbed and have a night of horror. Call them police. They probably wrote it. You have an issue. It's more than an issue. This is our lives we're fighting for. You get the first bullet the minute you stand at the microphone. You don't have to go after. Of the movies nominated for Best Picture, this is the most deserving. I mean, it's without a doubt Van Sant's best movie, in my opinion. He wrangled a pretty flawless cast. Sean Penn, Emile Hirsch, Josh Brolin, Diego Luna, James Franco, and Alison Pill, to name a few. I wish Alison Pill was in lots more. She's so good. And he moves the, the movie along at this very energetic pace. Feels like when Scorsese made Departed and covers a lot of ground. He never lingers too long before kind of splicing in some archival footage from the era. And despite the fact that I wasn't even alive at the time, the 1970s San Francisco of the movie feels as real to me as the Los Angeles of Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think the Castro district is really well done. So let's get to the importance of the movie. So in 08, when the movie was released, there had been many attempts to both legalize and criminalize same-sex marriages. In uh, 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court case Obergefell v. Hodges, which we discussed last season when we were talking about the film Loving. That case ruled denying same-sex couples the right to marry was unconstitutional. So let me just read that ruling. No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than once they were. As some of the petitioners in these cases demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It would misunderstand, this is the best part, it would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. Their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find its fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. So that was seven years after the movie came out. And the point of this show is to talk about movies and disagreeing about movies is so much more fun and way less volatile than <laughs> disagreeing about politics, societal issues, or even religion. But we got to do it. So if you dread that kind of stuff, and I really don't blame you, 
go ahead and skip, skip, skip to my loo if you must. So love is love. And I don't see a difference between this conversation and the one we had last season regarding loving. Like Milk, loving was based on a true story and it follows Richard and Mildred's loving's journey towards the landmark Supreme Court case, which declared all anti-miscegenation laws unconstitutional, making their interracial marriage legal and binding. And despite growing up in the wake of Harvey Milk, just like the loving family, I'd never heard of, of him. These Supreme Court cases are not frequently discussed. It took making movies for me to hear about the loving case or Harvey Milk. My introduction to gay people was through not just the incessant media coverage of AIDS, but was also, again, from television. This is the true story. The true story. Of seven strangers. <laughs> to live in a house and have their lives changed. To find out what happens when people stop being polite. And start getting real. The real world. San Francisco. It was Pedro Zamora from Real Real World Season 3. Did you watch Real World? Oh, yeah. Real okay. World, Road Rules, Real World, Road Rules Challenge. All okay. that Well, stuff. I didn't watch Road Rules, but Real World Season 3 was like my favorite season. I don't think any season ever came close. But Pedro Zamora and his boyfriend, Sean, um, were the first gay people I remember seeing on television. And for those of you old enough to remember the real world, they were pretty prominently featured as long as Puck wasn't hogging the spotlight before they kicked him out. The real lasting impact of that show was that it gave faces and shapes to the gay community for me. It made them human, made them real. It, it made them more than punchlines. And I've heard so many quibbles with gay marriage, but to me, they've never sounded like anything more than reconstituted anti-miscegenation arguments. The American family is in jeopardy. What about the children? God says no. And I don't want to vilify anyone, but I got to say, I agree with Professor Samuel L. Perry's opinion. He wrote a book with a really long title that's probably going to irritate you, Christian Nationalism and White Racial Boundaries, colon, Examining White's Opposition to Interracial Marriage. About interracial marriage, he said that religious attitudes combined with Christian nationalism increased opposition to intermarriage more than either attribute measured independently. And I see that and I see that still, this rooted opposition espoused proudly by just too many Christians. I grew up Catholic and I don't practice anymore, but I still find Christ's messages inspirational and relevant. Unfortunately, religious texts are subject to interpretation and there are plenty of folks, too many, Christian and otherwise, who choose to interpret their preferred religious text in a way that excludes, isolates, and prejudices um, homosexuals because it's an interpretation that jibes with their own fears. And I feel bad for those people. I feel bad for anyone who thinks the sky is falling because two people who love each other might be recognized as a legal couple. But anyway, Van Sant gave American cinema go goers feature profiles of real gay Americans and their stories that we don't normally get. In one junket interview, um, as much as I don't care for him, Franco said that was one of the main reasons he wanted to do the movie because he was hoping that it would give exposure to Harvey Milk. And Penn, in an interview he did right at the beginning of the lockdowns on uh, Howard Stern's show, he said that when production on the movie was over, he got kind of melancholy because he realized how he was done doing his research and prepping for the role. And he's like, I, and I knew now it kind of came home to me that I was never going to be able to meet this man that inspired me so much, a man that embodied the exact virtues and ethics that he desires to see in politicians. And I share both of their interest in, in this man. So that's why it's an important movie. Mm -hmm. And I think it's funny that Sean Penn talked about that he was sad that he would never get to meet Harvey Milk, when in essence, it's because of Sean Penn that we are all introduced to Harvey Milk. I sat here listening to you with a smile on my face and looking at what I might say to follow that up. 
and really, I don't want to dilute anything you said with any of my comments because it was it was phenomenal. But to talk a little bit about the movie and my opinion of it, Sean Penn and I shitted on him in season one, and so I always want to come back with saying that I think this is probably Sean Penn's best performance. And like we talked about with The Wrestler, because he turned it in this year, I agree that he deserved it over Mickey Rourke's phenomenal performance in The Wrestler. But not only him, Franco seems perfect for his part. The film is important because we should not forget how villainized gay people were just for falling in love and wanting to love other gay people. But if I may, the one thing that I want to talk about is I am a teacher working with mostly fifth to eighth graders. And when Pride Month started, the month of June, school was ending, and I had a couple students making Pride bracelets teaching me. Yeah, these were fifth and sixth graders. So about 10 year old, 10 to 11 years old. And they were teaching me because I didn't know that every letter of the LBGTQIA community has their own colors. So they're showing me their bracelets. And they're like, this one is for the trans community. And this one's for the queer. And I didn't have enough blue for the gays because they have a lot of blue. And I'm like, like, I, I didn't know any of this. And a seventh grade student walks in draped in a rainbow flag and fifth to eighth graders were complimenting her on her flag. And it was one of those moments of your teaching career where you just kind of sit back and you go, this is all right. I like where the world is going. And I know the sensational media likes to rile people up by showing the ignorant assholes shouting on street corners. But I just want our listening audience to know that at least in my school, and maybe in your school, and maybe in everybody's school, acceptance is being not only taught, but encouraged. That's really sweet. Yeah. And it, it makes me it makes me hopeful. preserve your democracy brothers and sisters you must come out come out to your parents come out to your friends if indeed they are your friends come out to your neighbors come out to your fellow workers once and for all let's break down the myths and destroy the lies and distortion for your sake for their sake, for the sake of all the youngsters who have been scared by the votes from Dade to Eugene. On the Statue of Liberty it says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. On the Declaration of Independence it is written, all men are created equal and endowed with certain inalienable rights. So, for Mr. Briggs and Mrs. Bryant and all the bigots out there, no matter how hard you try, you can never erase those words from the Declaration of Independence. No matter how hard you try, you can never chip those words from the face of the Statue of Liberty.
And with all that said that we talked about when it comes to milk and feelings toward the film, I think this is actually when it comes to our feelings towards Slumdog Millionaire, the opposite. We are very proud to like milk because it made us feel like forward thinkers. And I think the biggest problem when it comes to Slumdog Millionaire is we're kind of backwards in our thinking with how well this film should be received. So the Oscar goes to... Doubt, written and directed by John Patrick Shanley based on his play Doubt, a parable. I want you all to be alert. I am concerned about matters in St. Nicholas School. Academically? I was not inviting a guessing game, Sister Raymond. What's this, Mr. Conroy? I don't know, sister. They're all uniformly terrified of you. That's how it works. Boy! Come up here. The dragon is hungry. It's a new time, sister. The church needs to change. The point being? We should be friendlier. Father Flynn? He called Donald Miller to the rectory. So, it's happened. We are going to have to stop him. Ourselves. What happened in the rectory? Happened? Hmm. Nothing happened. I had a talk with a boy. What about? Private matter. He's 12 years old. What could be private? of anything. But I have my certainty. I can fight you. You will lose. Why you gotta know something like that for sure when you don't? You come to your school, kids don't like him. <laughs> One man is good to him, this priest. You just don't like him. You are letting that convince you of something terrible. Look at that. You blew out my light. Doubt can be a bond as powerful as certainty. When these nominations were released, I had seen Doubt already, and I was I was absolutely floored that it didn't get a, a, a Best Picture nod. I think I still hadn't seen The Reader. I think The Reader came out last, and maybe one or two more, uh, like The Wrestler. I can't remember exactly, but I was like, well, The Reader must be really good if it got the nomination over Doubt. And I walked out of The Reader being like, no, no. My best guess is the reason that it didn't get a nod is because this movie forces the viewer to examine themselves, examine their prejudices, and um, and it leaves you in a state of not knowing whether your gut was right or wrong. Amy Adams plays Sister James, a nun and eighth grade teacher at St. Nicholas Catholic Church and School in the Bronx. She's idealistic. She's cheerful. She cares deeply for the welfare and education of her students. And the principal of the school, Sister Aloysius, played by Meryl Streep, who we don't have to get into it, but I would be more than capable of making an argument for why she deserved Best Actress this year over uh, Winslet. I mean, it's um, everybody in this movie is fantastic, but she is top of her game. And she's the exact opposite of, of Amy Adams' sister, James. She's hardened. She's unsympathetic. She's cold. And then you have the pastor of the church, Father Flynn, this ideological, he's more ideologically in line with sister James. They kind of both take issue to sister Aloysius's incompassionate manner, but Father Flynn has far more agency to voice his disapproval. Whereas Amy Adams is meek 
young, not male. So the story centers around this alleged incident between Father Flynn and a young student named Donald Miller. Sister Aloysius is convinced the priest abused the boy and seems to have a deep-seated dislike for him. Father Flynn maintains his innocence and paints Sister Aloysius as intolerant. And both of these veterans of Christendom disrupt Sister James' reality as they each try shaping her to their biases. There's not much to say about this movie that Ebert didn't already say. He says that it is exact and merciless writing, powerful performances, timeless relevance, causes us to start thinking with the first shot and we never stop. Think how rare that is in a film. And in doing my research, I found a line by the writer-director John Patrick Shanley where he kind of shared his own personal stake in the film. And he says that doubt, I don't think he means his movie, I think he means the, the noun, person, place, thing, or idea, doubt, requires more courage than conviction does. And more energy because conviction is a resting place and doubt is infinite. It is a passionate exercise. You may come out of my play uncertain. You may want to be sure. Look down on that feeling. We've got to learn to live with a full measure of unsincerity. There is no last word. That's the silence under the chatter of our time. And uh, what he asks is undoubtedly difficult, especially 13 years later where the America that we live in now has, I mean, it's almost, uh, 2008 almost feels like a paradise compared to today. We have certainty plaguing political discourse and doubt is considered passivity or weakness. And I think of people saying, you know, you have to take a side. Whenever I speak with certainty on incendiary topics, I end up feeling like a fraud, but I still do it from time to time. I also feel this like strange worthlessness, like I'm not adding anything to the world. I save most of my certainty for talking about movies, but even then I'm sure I'm missing out somehow. And this movie is meant to unsettle us, to dislodge us from our comfort zones. And it's a rare day that the Academy is going to award a film like that, but it's a such a masterpiece. What do you do when you're not sure? That's the topic of my sermon today. Last year, when President Kennedy was assassinated, who among us did not experience the most profound disorientation? Despair. Which way? What now? What do I say to my kids? What do I tell myself? There was a time of people sitting together, bound together by a common feeling of hopelessness. But think of that. Your bond with your fellow being was your despair. It was a public experience. It was awful. But we were in it together. How much worse is it then for the lone man, the lone woman, stricken by a private calamity? No one knows I'm sick. No one knows I've lost my last real friend. No one knows I've done something wrong. Imagine the isolation. You see the world is through a window. On one side of the glass, happy, untroubled people, and on the other side, you. I think what I love about this film the most is that you can talk about it. You could talk about it at 
depth ad nauseum and still not spoil it. This movie is really hard to spoil. You might spoil the watching of it. You might spoil how the story unfolds. But in the end, this movie is a conversation piece, much like Ben Affleck's Gone Baby Gone, where in the end, you're going to drive away from it and you're going to talk about it with whoever saw the movie and you're going to ask them what they thought of it and what they thought they just saw. And it's that kind of open-endedness that I think Hollywood kind of shies away from. I personally, myself, I'm Mr. Doubt in Arguments. I'm the both of y'all are right side or the both of you are wrong side, but I don't like to, I like to try and find that gray area amongst everything. I myself have just started reading all the religious books I could find, trying to think of all the religions have some common ground that everybody could be right on. Not really. After I got done with the Bible, I was like, well, there is a great divide between what the Jewish believe and what the Christians do, but um, I don't know what the fuck that tangent was. Why this didn't get a <laughs> Um, <laughs> why this didn't get a nomination could simply be the fact that the Academy sucked this year. You thought you opened the show saying that you thought it was a horrible year for movies, but maybe it was just a horrible year for nominations. Absolutely. I mean, I haven't met one person who really liked Curious Case. You liked it. You didn't really. I didn't like really it. like it. No. Right. Or anyone that really remembers Frost Nixon. And wouldn't you know, as we researched this episode, I'm listening to a podcast called Script Notes which one of the screenwriters on there is John August. And it's one of the most revered screenwriting podcasts out there. And the host brings up doubt and how wonderfully acted and scripted and executed this movie is. I don't think there's a movie in the top five of this year that will come up on this podcast and it's 490 or so episodes. A question though is if doubt wins this year, does Spotlight down the road? What do you mean by that? You don't think that Spotlight could have won seven years later if doubt won this year? Is it is it just too much Catholicism? for the academy i think it's too much of catholic priests molesting little boys Uh, i don't think they you know like i feel like the academy would be like well they had their it's kind of the same thing with so those um, those people those people would have made their mind up about certainty they would have they would have made their mind up it was the same thing this year with minari like i was like there's no way minari's winning if parasite won the year before right the academy is gonna be like that's too much uh korean or whatever but (laughs) So as far as those two movies, not that this is what we're talking about, between Doubt and Spotlight, I would say Doubt is the stronger film. Uh, they're, they're so very different. Spotlight is is an ensemble piece based in in, in factual history, whereas Doubt- Blah, 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 blah. Doubt, Spotlight. <laughs> Who would you pick? <laughs> I, would, I would- Fuck. <laughs> I like them both, but Doubt is- Doubt is a masterpiece, whereas Spotlight is just history under glass. Doesn't make it bad, but yeah, right. doubt is doubt is better. Why is it so, better? Why does it resonate so much? Oh, I was gonna say it makes you think, and like you said, it makes you judge yourself. Now come in. A third party would be required. Yeah, what was Donald's mother doing here? We were having a chat. About what? A third party would truly be required. No, sister, no third party meeting you are due for a talk. You have to stop this campaign against me. You can stop it at any time. How? Confess and resign. You are attempting to destroy my reputation. You keep opening my window. What are you doing in this school? I'm trying to do good. Even more to the point. What are you doing in the priesthood? You are single-handedly holding this school and this parish back. From what? Progressive education and a welcoming church. You can't 
Distract me, Father. This is not about my behavior. No, it's about yours. No, this is yours. about your unfounded suspicions. That's right. I Just have leave suspicions. that. It's not important. I will decide. What's important? Why do you suspect me? What have I done? You gave that boy wine, and you let him take the blame. That's completely untrue. Did you talk to Mr. McGinn? All McGinn knows is that the boy drank wine. He doesn't know how he came to drink it. Did his mother have something to add to that? No. So that's it? I am not satisfied. Ask the boy then. Oh, he'd protect you. Why would he do that? Because you have seduced him. You're insane. You've got it in your head that I corrupted this child after giving him wine, and nothing I say will change that. That's right. But this has nothing to do with the wine. Not really. You've had a fundamental mistrust of me before this incident. It was you that warned Sister James to be on the lookout, wasn't it? That's true. So you admit it! Certainly. Why? I know people. So I think it's because I constantly, maybe you can share this sentiment, but I, I constantly live my life in a state of Amy Adams. And that's not to say I see myself as an innocent or an idealist like Sister James, but rather it's because I feel I'm never free of the persistent proliferation of persuasive ideologies. So many passionate opinions bombard my own every day. And I'm reduced to this constant state of reevaluation. I doubt the accuracy of information coming in. I search for biases, no matter the source. I question people's motives even my own. And it's an awful way to live, honestly. I, I wish I could believe in something, to trust with steadfast assurance that the outlook that I have is sound. And that's what I mean by living in this state of Amy Adams. And that's why I think doubt resonates so much. And I don't think I'm alone there. I think there are a lot of folks out there feel who feel pushed and pulled by um, opinions or facts or the factual factness of facts. <laughs> <laughs> I would put myself as a father Flynn. And really what I mean by that is... A diddler. <laughs> no, no, God damn it. The... <laughs> So one of the main things with my teaching is I teach more of a, on a sociological aspect with the children. And I've been doing this for about 12 years now, taking a four-year break in between when I went out to LA. And my first thought after six years when I took a leave of absence was I survived that without an accusation because an accusation in my line of work could be that's a career killer. That's a headline. Like that's, that's almost a life ender right? Just an accusation. But in the same instance, the way that my program is run, the way that I work is I, I believe that I am a safe zone for these children. I'm an adult figure that is not a teacher or a parent. Let's say it like that. But I also, running into my fair share of Meryl Streep's in the world, I now know, like, I know that if I walk off with one student, I'm going to take two. You learn all these things as a male educator because the world will believe an accusation more so than they would believe, even if they knew you, what your reputation is going to be. And so when I watch the film Doubt, I look at it from Father Flynn and the way that Philip Seymour, and I hope that you... <laughs> 
compliment Philip Seymour Hoffman in this role because you shit on him last season. Yeah. The the performance that he gives where he's haunted by something. Yep. But he's also incredulous at the accusation made against him. It's a good way to put it. It bre- Yeah, it breaks my heart. But in the same instance, I'm also putting up a wall, right? Yep. And that that is kind of how every scene in this movie has you thinking, has you questioning, has you as a jury member trying to decide what is right is w- and what is wrong. And despite, I'm sure, a Hollywood studio being like, well, we have to define this, they did not. And I think that is why this movie should be up on the pillars of the Dolby. Uh, this morning, before I spoke with Mrs. Miller, I took the precaution of calling your last parish. What do you say? Who? The pastor. I did not speak to the pastor. I spoke to a nun. You, you should have spoken to the pastor. I spoke to a nun. You know, that's not the proper route for you to have taken, sister. The church is very clear. You're supposed to go through the pastor. Why? You have an understanding, you and Hayden? No, you have no right to go rummaging through my past. You have a history. This is your third parish in five years. Call the why? pastor. Ask him why I left. It's perfectly innocent. I'm not calling the pastor. Now, I'm a good priest. Go after another child. And another child until no. you what, are stopped. What, what nun did you speak to? I won't say. I've not touched a you child. Have. You haven't the slightest proof of anything. But I have my certainty. And on with that, I'll go to your last parish. And the one before that. If necessary, I'll find a parent. Trust me, Father Flynn, I will. You have no right to act on your own. You have taken vows, obedience being one. You answer to us. You have no right to step outside the church. I will step outside the church. If that's what needs to be done, though the door should shut behind me, I will do what needs to be done. Though I'm damned to hell. You should understand that, or you will mistake me. You know, what I thought was really interesting is that apparently when this play was staged, I can't remember the actor that played Father Flynn. The only person who I can remember was Cherry Jones. She played Aloysius. But um, just as every time the play was staged and then when he made this film, the only person who got to know whether Father Flynn was guilty or innocent was the actor that played Father Flynn. So knowing that, I would encourage anybody that has never seen this movie or is interested in seeing this movie again to really look at Philip Seymour, how Philip Seymour Hoffman, despite knowing unequivocally the answer to that question, you still can't tell. Like it doesn't, you know what I'm saying? It doesn't come out in his performance. He, like knowing it helps him shroud it even better. All right, so Slumdog Millionaire producer Christian Coulson will be taking that statue back and giving it over to Celia D. Costas, Mark Roybell, Scott Rudin, Nora Skinner to Doubt. Best picture of the year 2009 is Doubt. Well done. Yeah, I, I wonder if we convinced our audience, because I'm sure when they saw it, they're like, but I like Slumdog. I wonder how many people... Well, I also wonder how many people haven't even seen Doubt and have seen Slumdog, haven't seen Doubt. So hopefully we'll we'll cause all 25 of our listeners to <laughs> find Doubt somewhere and watch it. All right, good job. Yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs>
The next episode is going all the way back to 1974. That's right. But we'll be brief, we promise. Because we know that most people don't want to hear about movies from 1974. Yeah, what are we going to talk about? Best actor, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are red. Well, that does it for this episode, folks. Please tune in October 18th for our next episode, the first in a three-part series that Spro has confusingly dubbed Poly Academy as we try and correct the political mistakes of the Oscars. See if you can guess where we're going to end when we start with Best Actor of 1975. And if you're new to our little shindig, Spro and Lee episodes, old and fresh, are released every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. Please join our Facebook group, follow us on Instagram, or send an email to takeontheacademy at gmail.com with any suggestions, questions, complaints, recipes, or manifestos. We like hearing from you. We'll see you front row when the envelopes are red. <laughs>